this morning, I want to share with you an introductory message that will take us for the next several weeks through the Old Testament book of Exodus. And we begin this morning in Exodus chapter 1. The book of Exodus begins where the book of Genesis ends. And the truth of the matter is that if you want to truly understand the scope and the meaning of this particular Old Testament book, you need to see its placement sandwiched between Genesis, the first book, and Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. Think about it this way, and I'm just hitting the high spot, so stay with me, we'll go fast. Genesis begins with God's relationship with one man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. His relationship with one man quickly spreads to a family, Adam and Eve's family. And we know the tragic story of Cain and Abel. But from there, throughout the book of Genesis, it's always God relating to one man or one family. We think about God's relationship with Noah and how Noah built the ark and ultimately God began the population of the world with Noah and his family. We could quickly move to Abraham and talk about God's relationship with Abraham and how he took him out of a land of Ur and the Chaldees, as the Old Testament calls it, to a land that Abraham really didn't know where he was going. The idea is that somebody would meet Abe on the way and say, where are you headed? And he said, I don't know. I'm just following God's will for my life. That's not a bad way to live, by the way. And so as Abraham eventually lands and discovers what God's will is for him and for his family. The Bible then moves to another man we know as Isaac and then his son Jacob. And so as we look at Jacob and his children, we discover that there was a favored son of Jacob named Joseph. Remember Joseph? We sing about him in children's classes in church. It's the coat of many colors the truth of the matter is that Joseph was disliked very much by his brothers. They sold him into slavery and he wound up in no other place other than Egypt. But God has a way of bringing families back together, doesn't he? A famine would take place in the land of Jacob where Jacob was living and he sent his sons to Egypt to buy grain, to buy food so that they could survive. And lo and behold, when they get to Egypt, they discover that their own flesh and blood, the, the brother that they'd abandoned, the one that they'd rejected, the one that they had said, we don't want to have anything to do with you anymore and we don't ever want to see you again, that very one is ruling and reigning in Egypt. We might call him the Secretary of State. Some would say Vice President. Number two, number three in the land, only one above Joseph in Egypt was Pharaoh, the king. That's how they were called back then. And so as they present themselves to Joseph, Joseph immediately recognizes them. He knows his brothers. And they're uncomfortable around him at first as he reveals himself as for who he is. And, and they fear because he's in that place of prominence now that he's going to get his revenge on them. But Joseph does something that is so God-like, he forgives them. 
And he says to them a beautiful word there in the end of the book of Genesis. He says, what you did to me, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. And understanding the providence of God and the supervision of God, Joseph says, God has put me here at this time so that I may provide for you. And he does something again very graciously. He brings his whole family to Egypt and he lets them have a portion of land that he was able to give them that we know was the land of Goshen. Have you ever heard anybody say, and I say it respect, respectfully, probably our old timers among us, land the Goshen? It's an expression. But this is where we get it. Joseph's family and descendants lived in the land of Goshen. There's about 400 years that pass between the Old Testament book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. And what started out as a family of about 120 people now has grown over 400 years to what we estimate to be a nation of over 2 million people. So think about it this way. God begins with one man and his family, and throughout the book of Genesis, it's always God's relationship with a family, a family, a family. Now we come to the book of Exodus, and it is God's relationship with a nation. They are in bondage in Egypt. That's what we're going to read about in just a moment. And so the book of Exodus is how God gets the descendants of Joseph, the Hebrews, out of slavery, how he gets them out of Egypt. Now, I mentioned the book of Leviticus a while ago. Let me just say parenthetically that the book of Leviticus is how God got Egypt out of the Hebrews. Exodus is how he got Hebrews out of Egypt. Leviticus is how he got Egypt out of them. You follow me? In the book of Exodus, you will see all the main and major doctrines in the Bible. It is a beautiful story of how God takes a man and delivers a nation that he would call his very own, a chosen seed, a chosen race, and say, I want to do something very, very special with you. Now, we know what God has in mind, right? He's going to take them out of Egypt and he's going to lead them to what we would also call the promised land, Canaan. So they're coming from Goshen, which was an appointed place of protection as long as Joseph was alive, now to the land of Canaan, the promised land, and it's a very, very critical spot in this world, even to this day, because God said, I want people who will honor me right there. Because he knew that people from all over this globe would want to travel to other parts of the world and as they would pass through this land, this place where this peculiar people lived, that the strangers, the travelers would ask, why do you live this way? What causes you to do the things that you do? And it would be an open door opportunity for the Israelites Hebrews, Israelites, Jews, all the same people, for them to tell someone else about their God. Do you follow me this morning? That ultimately is God's desire for your life and mine. 
You see, we haven't been called to live as the world lives. We're to be different. We think differently. We make decisions differently than those who do not hold a Christian view. And I think so many times we, we don't capitalize on the opportunity when someone says, why did you do that? Explain to me how you can live. Sometimes it's a calmness in the midst of the storm. Sometimes it's a peace in the face of adversity. Sometimes it's just a willingness to resolve yourself to do the right thing even when it's unpopular and when everybody else would say, I don't think I would have done that. And we say, but it's who I am. But it's because my God has given me this understanding of how to please Him in the decisions that I make and, and in the ways that I live. And so the book of Exodus is going to show us how God continues that process of expanding His involvement in this world from one man, one family, one nation, ultimately to the globe, to every people and every race and every nation on this planet. I'm excited about this study. I want you to look with me at verse 8 and listen to what it says. It says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I just gave you that little five-minute view of the book of Genesis. Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. But his family continues on in Egypt. And now the book of Exodus says, But some time has passed. A new king is in Egypt. And he doesn't know Joseph. He didn't favor Joseph's family in the way that the other pharaohs may have favored them because they knew of Joseph's contributions in Egypt. And so that's what it's telling us is that there's a king now who did not know of Joseph and will not favor his descendants that way. But listen to what the king said. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come. Let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. I would encourage you in the margin of your Bible, right there at verses 8 and 9, to write the word insecurity. The book of Exodus begins with the insecurity of a king and his paranoia. Fear always breeds insecurity. And so as the king looks out over the land of Goshen, and obviously he can see that there are so many people there now, he, he says to his advisors and those in his cabinet, he says, we need to deal wisely. Actually, the word is shrewdly. It is the idea that we, we need to make some contractual agreements with them so that ultimately and eventually we have an advantage over them. Now the agreements and the contracts you're going to discover was that they wanted to use the descendants of Joseph as a labor force. And the idea I'm sure at the beginning was that we will give you fair pay for your work. But over time the Egyptians began to usurp their authority over the descendants of Joseph. That's obviously what's taking place here. So the idea is not, I just want to enter into an agreement with them and let them become our workforce. It's the idea that I want to rule over them. 
And so he's concerned that they're going to wage war against Egypt or that they're going to join those other nations out there who dislike Egypt and also attack them. So look at what it says in verse 11. It says, so they appointed taskmasters over them. That is, the Egyptians appointed taskmasters over the descendants of Joseph with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. These would have been places where they could have stored their, their grain and their produce and all that they would have needed to provide for themselves in times of drought. Verse 12, but the more the Egyptians afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they, the Egyptians, were in dread of the sons of Israel. You know what that verse reminds me of? It's the idea of what happens anytime the church is attacked. Anytime a force in this world says, we don't like what the church is doing, and we're going to do everything that we can to stamp you out. If you've ever had uh, maybe a charcoal fire or maybe a little campfire in your yard and you're just burning some limbs or twigs or whatever, think of it this way. If, if you were to go over and just take your foot and try to stamp out the fire, some little plumes of fire would just get in the air. and they, What happens? They go over land, can land somewhere else and light a fire somewhere else. That's what happens when the church is persecuted. God just strengthens the church. He, he multiplies the church. And that's what God was doing with the Israelites here. Look at what it says. Verse 13, the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. This past winter, we enjoyed viewing and watching the Winter Olympics. Did you see any of that? I don't know how you could have missed it. So every day I would go to work, there would be a group of teachers who would want to talk about what happened in the Olympics, and they were keeping up with all the gold medals that the nations were winning and so forth. And I was taking notes as I would, I would watch the episodes, and I, I was always interested in the little blurbs that they would give you on the athletes, literally from around the world, but they, they would kind of take you back and tell you about what that athlete was like at home when, when he or she was not competing. And you discover that, you know, they weren't, they were professional athletes, but they weren't paid enough to survive. They couldn't live off of the money that they made as an athlete, perhaps, but they would, they would just they would do all sorts of kinds of vocational work and had all kinds of careers, and I was interested in that, but there, there was one teacher in my school, Justin Odom, by the way, who's a single, he teaches our engineering students, and he got me hooked on curling. Any of you ever watched the curling competition in the Winter Olympics? You know what I'm talking about? It's nothing but a big shuffleboard in an ice skating rink. That's basically what it is. 
And he began to tell me about, I didn't know about curling. I didn't have any interest in curling. It's, I mean, it just wasn't my kind of thing. You know, it wasn't a contact sport like we enjoy at college football. Well, for some teams, it's contact anyway. So he began to tell me about these stones that they would craft, and they were all made in one location in the world, and they were polished, and they weighed about 40 pounds, and, and they cost thousands of dollars, and how much it cost. To, he began to quote all these statistics of how much it cost to make one of those and sell them and so forth, and how curling uh, athletes in Russia could make twenty, forty thousand dollars a year. I had no idea. Do you, do you know any of that? And so he would stay up to two and three in the morning, come to work the next day, and I could say, "You watch the curling." He said, "Yeah, it came on about three thirty this morning. I had to get up." I said, "You know, Justin, they make devices that you can use to record that kind of stuff, and you don't have to get up." He said, "Yeah, but I like to watch it live." And I'm thinking to myself, "Really?" <laughs> It's a curling competition. But he wants to see it as it's happening, you know. These were, these were what I would call the unlikely champions of the Winter Olympics. Now, not just the curling participants, but, but when, they would, when, the, when the TV networks would really focus in on one athlete and tell us their life story and maybe, maybe, maybe their, their, their impetus, their, their desire to compete came out of some kind of tragedy or, or backdrop against some, some sad situation that they went through or their family was going through, maybe even their town or their people. And they were heralded as, as a hero among that, that group of people. And they believed in them and, and they, they, they prayed for them and they encouraged them and they supported them in that way. This morning, I am introducing to you to two unlikely champions of the descendants of Joseph. And they come to us as Shipra and Puah. I believe these were older women who had excelled and were recognized in the skills as midwives. Without physicians, without nurses, without somebody there to help children to be brought into this world, the, the midwives were, were a group of themselves, a subgroup we might call them. And I believe Shipra and Puah may have been the older women who trained the young ones on how to bring babies into this world. Such an honorable trade. By the way, I have a friend, a physician, who's a member of First Baptist Jackson, and he's written a book, and the book is all about the possibility of a midwife who may have been there to give birth when Jesus was born. Just a beautiful thought that he believes very strongly in, the scripture never mentions it, but the idea that midwives were still used in the first century when Jesus was born. And he says, oh, I believe that one was there to bring the Savior into the world. Beautiful, beautiful thought. And that's what Shipra and Puah are doing. Reveals to them his own paranoia. And he reveals to them his own paranoia about the descendants of Egypt. And he says, here's what I want you to do. The baby is born and you see it's a male child, kill it. Why? 
Because that male child could grow up and with the strength that that male child could possibly have, he could become a force against them, against Egypt. He saw them as a threat. Now, if it's a girl, you can let her live. But a male child, you're to kill it. Look at Shipra and Puah's response. Look at what happens here. It says in verse 17, but the midwives feared God. Now that word fear means revered. They respected God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this, this thing, and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, that is respected, revered God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, Every son who is born you're to cast into the Nile and every daughter you're to keep alive. Eventually, we're getting to the story of Moses. He is the prominent personality in the book of Exodus. But against the backdrop of Moses arriving on the scene, you have to see what was taking place here. As the king would issue these commands for the midwives to kill all the male children, and then when they did not follow the king's command, he would say to his soldiers, go get the male children and throw them into the Nile River, which sets the stage for chapter 2 in the book of Exodus. We'll get willing. I, I, I want you to have three takeaways from this story this morning. The first is this. These midwives, Shipra and Puah, you, you may have never heard their names, but if you have, maybe in your mind you're wondering, well, how do I know them? I, I want them to be elevated this morning. I, I want you to just lift them up and recognize them as role models for how our lives ought to be lived. And the first thing I want to show you is that they obeyed God rather than man. That's the first thing. They chose God rather than man. And what you see in this scripture is what we would call civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is described this way. If the government declares a law that is in violation of scripture, we as Christians should not obey that law. If the government ever prevents you and me from expressing our faith freely and living out the convictions that we hold true from Scripture and how we believe God expects us to live, then we should be disobedient to our government. But understand how that works. It doesn't work when you want to sign a petition, well, when you want to carry banners and start a march and all of that, although that can be good and it can be effective, I'm letting you know I think the better way is to quietly, privately go about our work, go about our lives, believing in our heart that we're going to please God rather than man. Man can get it wrong sometimes, right? We get it. We understand that. But our lives ought to be lived out with the understanding that God is the one that we will answer to. And if we honor Him, He will bless us. 
If we dishonor Him, we will live with the consequences of that. Now, permission not to pay my taxes. I don't want anybody to leave today saying, preacher gave me permission not to pay my taxes. No, I did not. Have I even... How do, how do you get that? Is it possible that you, you can break the speed limit and say, oh, well, they're just wrong here. That's, that's, the speed limit ought to be 70, not, not 40. No. You get stopped by law enforcement and you say, my preacher told me. No. I did not tell you you could break the law. Civil disobedience is all, all around a, morale, a morality issue. It's all about the sacredness of human life. There's a beautiful story in the book of Acts how the Romans tried to silence Peter and John, remember? And how they brought them in before the magistrates and they were about to throw them into prison and they said, guys, we're going to obey God rather than man every time. And so if you, if you put us in prison, that, we'll have to live through that. We'll have to suffer through that. But when you let us out, we're going to you that if ever the... Which leads me just to say to you that if ever the government tries to find a way to silence or censor or edit or redact, whatever you want to say, sermons that are preached, I hope some of you will come visit me in jail. <laughs> Not meaning I want to go to jail. Some of you didn't find that funny at all. Like, yeah, well, you need to go. <laughs> what I meant was, if I wind up there, I hope you will come see me. That's how our lives ought to be. They chose to obey God rather than man. We do not fear any man, any form of government on this planet. I love the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. And, and you always wonder, well, Nebuchadnezzar was such a you know, powerful influence in Babylon and, and, and it was known around the world that Daniel could go in and just say, you're going to die. <laughs> Interpret my dream. Dan yep, you're going to die. How do you tell a king that? When? And here's how to let you live or to take your life. Daniel feared no man. And here's the thing. When you spend time with your heavenly father, is the most powerful presence that exists. You can't even say in the world. You can't say in the universe. You can't say that exists. You fear no man. So they, they honored God. The second thing I want you to see is that they chose life over death. Now let me quickly tell you, I know that this is not going to be a popular thought. But I want, you to see, I want you to hear my heart this morning and I want you to see where I'm coming from. When I was a student at New Orleans Seminary, I, I think I've mentioned George Harrison to you before. He was an Old Testament professor, taught Hebrew and Old Testament and, and just one of my favorite professors. I remember sitting under his instruction as he led us through this story and, 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 and he did something that caught us off guard. He, oftentimes he would assume the role of a character from Scripture and he would just play it out in front of you that he, it, would just, it would just make it come to life. On that particular day, he lived the role of the Roman soldiers, uh, excuse me, the Egyptian soldiers who were sent into the homes to find the babies and to throw them in the Nile River. And he described for us in such beautiful detail that was almost too graphic for those of us sitting in the classroom. And he talked about how he had to be combative with the parents 
the father, the grandfather, and the mother, the grandmother, and how he would find the babies wrapped in clothes, just covered up, and and he would take them out with the babies screaming, the parents screaming, and, and he would talk about throwing them in the Nile River and so forth. And it was not something that you like to think about, and there was not a dry eye in the house. But he was pulling us in emotionally. And he said, don't just read this scripture and think, oh, that happened. And all of us said, you bet. And he said, aren't you glad we don't live in that kind of culture? And all of us said, you bet. Amen. And he said, that's exactly who we are. This is not a popular thought. Follow me. Every historian, Gibbons, decline and fall of the Roman Empire, read them. Every historian who's ever written has said every great empire that's ever existed in the world led to its demise when it embraced two things, homosexuality and abortion. If we do not make the sanctity of life an issue, it won't be an issue. Moses had to come back to this in the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. Deuteronomy is a book all its own. I love the book. It's five sermons. You think my sermons are long? Read Deuteronomy. It took chapter 30 of Deuteronomy that everybody buy. And in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, this is what he said in verse 19. God has the ability to bless us. If we do not live according to His laws, according to His guidance, we will suffer the consequences for it. And then He tacks this on that you think, well, where did that come from? He says, choose life, choose life, choose life. Three times He told the Israelites, choose life. Life over death, life over... Why? Because this is God. This is God. 2 Peter 3, 9. God does not desire that any person die and perish without Him. It is God's desire that every person come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is all about life. Living. Not death. Not eternal separation from God. But life. And Shipra and Puah chose that which is good. They chose life. I think they had the view, quickly, is they chose the eternal over the temporary. I think they had the view here to understand that there was something greater at stake here. That they understood what was going to happen to their very people and the nation that they loved if they followed the king's commands. And so they denied him the opportunity to tell them what to do. And it was as if God gave them the vision to look out there in the future and say, ah, this would not be good for us down the road. Life for you and me, ladies and gentlemen, ought to be lived with that eternal view. In London, and I've only read about it, there is a garden that has a a sepulcher, a tomb in the back of it. And in the entrance to the garden, there are three gates. On the left side, there is over the gate a a little picture of a bouquet of flowers and and a little saying that says this, it says, those things that please us soon fade away. Like flowers that don't last forever, they just fade away. On the is a picture of a cross. There is a smaller entrance, and above it is a picture of a cross. 
And underneath, this is what it says, those things that trouble us are only temporary. The cross, they are being a symbol of suffering and pain. Those things that trouble us are only temporary. And then you come to the middle where there is a much larger arch, a higher arch, and above it you see a picture of a sunset or a sunrise, ever how you interpret it. And this is what it says. But those things that are significant in life are those things which are eternal. Flowers fade. Trouble is temporary. But our view in life is that of an eternal one that we understand that God has a way of bringing us into his relationship with him so that we can live forever. How do you get that from Exodus chapter 1 at Shifra and Puah? You say, I thought, I thought this was going to be about Moses. Well, well, it may be about Moses somewhere down the road, but right now it's about you and me and God. In 1960, there was a scientist at MIT, that's Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Not an easy thing to say in a sermon on Sunday morning, but MIT... His name was Edward Laverne, and Edward Laverne was tasked with the responsibility of writing a software. Yes, I said it, 1960, he's writing software at MIT, get this now, that evaluates and predicts weather patterns. You want to know who's to blame whenever the weatherman is not right? Edward Laverne. But as he's writing the software, he discovers that as he's putting in the data to the software, he discovered he put the decibel place, a figure, just one data point that was wrong because he put the decibel place in the wrong place, decimal in the wrong place. And so he said, well, it's not going to make that much difference. And he moved the decimal place from maybe the 1,000th to the 110th or 100th, whatever it was, and he discovered that it affected the outcome of the weather predictions dramatically. Edward Laverne introduced to the scientific community what was known as the butterfly effect. Because as he would make his presentation over what he had discovered and actually play with the data as he would move the decimal one place at a time, he would show them how it would affect the predictions of weather patterns literally around the world. And then he would say, this is what this means. Butterflies migrating across the continent from one place to another by the flapping of their wings, could literally affect a change in weather. The butterfly effect. A butterfly. You don't think of a butterfly having much effect on the world at all, especially with the flapping of its wing. Now, an eagle maybe, or a buzzard. You see a buzzard out there flapping around. Got big wings. You think a lot of power and energy can come from the wings and the wingspan. But a butterfly... But it's true. A butterfly can change weather patterns. And you, ladies and gentlemen, every single one of you who go by the name of Christian and have the presence of the Almighty living and residing in your heart and in your life, 
can dramatically affect the outcomes of things around you. It's all through godly influence. You've got to decide to honor him above man. You've got to choose life over death and you have to live with that eternal view in mind. Is that who you are? Stand with me this morning.